Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Rice. I'm recording this here in my office, where I work as a trauma-informed therapist, helping individuals and couples. I also teach mindfulness and meditation, as well as breathwork, and I offer legal psychedelic-assisted therapy. You can learn more about this and other offerings, blog posts, resources, and information on my website, stateofmindcounseling.org. And it has been brought to my attention that this podcast is woefully underrepresented on Spotify reviews. <laughs> so if you're listening to this, consider listening to the episode on Spotify and then leaving us a five-star review. That would be super appreciated. Today, I have the good fortune of speaking with my friend, the Buddhist teacher, Lama Mike Crowley. This is the second time on the podcast, so if you're new here, please consider going back in time, go back through the archives, back to episode number 71 in our first conversation. So I'm going to take advantage of this intro to share some of my thoughts and reflections around two subjects that are very dear to my heart, which are psychedelic medicines and their potential use for healing, transformation, even awakening, and the Buddhist traditions, their teachings, their practices, and the roadmaps that they offer us. I realized after talking to Lama Mike that there is a lot more I could have said on this subject, so I do hope to have him back again sometime in the future. But one thing I feel I should share is that uh, Mike Crowley's work, you know, discussing psychedelics as being a historical part of the Buddhist traditions, especially the tantric traditions, is controversial and is not a mainstream view in traditional Buddhist circles. Now that, that may be changing through his work and through the psychedelic renaissance that we're in and all the scientific research and interest in all things psychedelic these days, but the fact is that generally speaking, it's not a mainstream view. One of my main Buddhist teachers is Chokinima Rinpoche. He is a very revered Lama. He was born in Tibet. He is the son of Toku Ergen Rinpoche who is widely regarded as one of the most highly realized Dzogchen masters who left Tibet when the Chinese invaded and um, began their terrible campaign of genocide and cultural destruction, which unfortunately is still continuing today in Tibet. I don't think that Chokinima Rinpoche would mind my sharing that at teachings of his last summer, he shared his perspective that the point of the Dharma is to realize one's natural state, not an altered state of consciousness. And he expressed doubt and skepticism regarding the use of things like LSD and other psychedelics as part of one's path. And when he shared this, I really do not believe he was holding back some secret teaching or secret part of the lineage, you know, some secret aspect of Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism. I think he was being honest. I, you know, he said that many years ago he had been offered by a senior student to take LSD with his father. He chose to not do that. And he expressed the view that we are already diluted, that the point of the Dharma is to get undiluted and that mind-altering substances are a kind of double delusion. So I wanted to just share that out of respect to him and the, the Buddhist teachings and traditions. And all that being said, I do think Lama Mike Crowley's research and writing and insights um, on the subject are fascinating. I've really been opening my mind up to the possibility, especially that historically, psychedelics may have been used in early tantric Buddhist rituals and practices especially in India, when you look at the stories of the Mahasiddhas. And um, in some of those stories, it seems like very clear evidence that um, psychedelics are being used, especially mushrooms. We talk about that with, with Mike Crowley here in this episode. Also, with all due love and respect to the authentic lineages and traditions, and they absolutely deserve to be carried forth in an authentic and genuine way. They have a trem tremendous amount to offer us. A lot of the texts and traditions are still being translated. Um, they, obviously, they hold extremely profound and advanced teachings and practices. Um, so with all, all the love in the world and respect to that, I do believe it's important to be a part of this evolving world we're in today. You know, I'm recording this here in February 2024. We are in a very different world in so many ways, culturally, socially, 
technologically, in terms of our science, our knowledge. Um, we're in a very different world today than we were 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And our forms of spirituality, of meditation, and of practice need to evolve to meet this, this new world, to be a part of it, to, to inform it. I also believe there's enough room in this world for different paths and different tools. Different people can choose things that might be helpful to them at a point in time on their path, and later they may not be helpful. I think we should have uh, understanding and acceptance of that. The Dharma offers us detailed roadmaps that enables us to travel from states of delusion and suffering to states of transcendental insight or wisdom, and to increasingly embody compassion and well-being. A well-trained meditator is not just someone who's put in a lot of time following their breath, or who's spent a lot of time, quote, just sitting. In the Buddhist tradition, a well-trained meditator is someone who has a good working understanding of the Dharma, of the different roadmaps, and who is applying their physical body, their energetic body, and their mental body to engaging in a process of realizing their innate wisdom, which is the union of calm abiding, called shamatha in Sanskrit, and transcendent insight, called vipassana. It's the ongoing realization of this quality of vipassana that makes one's meditation practice authentically Buddhist, in the sense of actually applying the actual teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha to one's own stream of consciousness. Through study, reflection, and meditation, one's consciousness becomes pliable, trainable, adaptable, and able to cultivate increasing levels of well-being and life energy through increased sensitivity to the constant stream of information that the human nervous system is taking in within every given moment. The Buddhist path of gradual awakening leads, theoretically, to a state of continuous and effortless, naturally abiding, awakening insight through having direct glimpses of the nature of reality, which is called the truth body of the awakened heart being, or Buddha. So I'd like to take this opportunity to propose translating the word Buddha in the English language into awakening heart being. This translation points to the qualities inherent in Buddha, namely that it is both an ongoing evolutionary process or developmental process, and at the same time it has the quality or aspect of being pure awakened awareness, which is transcendent to relative space-time. Buddha points to the possibility of self-realization of the fabric of reality itself. The Sanskrit word Buddha is typically translated as the awakened one. However, the Buddha really dwells in the heart. This consciousness that is said to awaken was located in India and then later in Tibet, as being in the heart in terms of its location in our physical body. And the word, quote, one, in the translation, quote, the awakened one, is not a good translation for a Buddhist concept, because the Buddha explicitly taught that there is in fact no self, that there is no, quote, unquote, one here being awakened. Turning our attention now to the subject of psychedelics, the psychedelic experience was described, I believe by Stanislav Grof, as being like getting strapped to a rocket ship and not knowing what direction you're about to blast off in. So it's unpredictable, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you can be well assured that something tremendous is going to happen. There's going to be some big change to your conscious subjective experience if you take the right amount of a psychedelic medicine. Meditation practice can give the practitioner an increased ability to set a direction and to consciously participate to co-create your experience. Psychedelics can be thought of then as adding fuel to the fire, adding fuel to the fire of the rocket ship of your own consciousness. I believe that skillful psychedelic use can be a method or a skillful means in one's path. This is a different argument for the legitimate use of psychedelics as part of your spiritual or meditation path. It's a different argument than arguing that 
psychedelic medicines were used historically um, in ancient India or in other places, and then that part of the tradition was either lost or became so, or it was so secret that, it, that most people today don't even know about it. Because the fact does seem to be that the majority of lamas, monks, and nuns practicing Buddhism today don't know about secret psychedelic rituals actively happening in the in the Buddhist world. It's possible that they're happening on a small scale and that they've been kept so secret that no one knows about it. But what I'm proposing here is just is a different argument. That we can use psychedelics skillfully as a skillful means and as a way the Dharma is actually evolving with our culture today. Perhaps the contemporary Western educated mind can be forgiven for questioning having too much of an allegiance to tradition and precedent. It's possible that having too much reverence for tradition can be a doorway through which corruption can enter by cloaking itself in the magnificent robes of an ancient tradition. The real Dharma is not a piece of cloth. I really believe that we need legitimate forms of the Dharma that are evolving, that are meeting our world where it's at today, and that our world today really does need all the tools and all the skillful means possible to help our collective healing, our collective development, and that this can and should include the skillful use of psychedelics and other consciousness-altering practices. Without further ado, I bring you Lama Nike Crowley. Lama Mike Crowley, thank you for being on the podcast. You're quite welcome. It's great to have you back. It's it's actually Crowley, uh, not the same as Alistair, who pronounces his name Crowley. Right. Crowley uh, is an English name. Mine is an Irish name with a totally different origin. Comes from Gaelic. That's right. I remember that. So it's great to have you back on the podcast. This is the second time, and you've since come out with a new book called Psychedelic Buddhism which um, I've been reading, and it's um, much more detailed than I realized. It has a lot of great information, details. Um, it's really a guide for people. Introduction to Buddhism, but also a lot of background around a lot of different psychedelic medicines, and then a guide to how they could be used in the best possible way for one's journey, right? For one's spiritual journey. Well, it was actually intended to be um, two things. One, an introduction to Buddhism for people who'd only just um, taken psychedelics and not uh, dipped their toe into the ocean of Dharma. And um, secondly, it was an introduction to psychedelics to people who thought uh, Buddhism was uh, um, devoid of such things. It's, um, it's becoming um, public knowledge these days that Dalai Lama mentioned something about it last year oh, really? that it's it's about time that we Tibetans he said um, fessed up about our use of psychedelics and um, uh, there are some there, there are several other Lamas I know of who have used psychedelics mostly um um quietly with their students but some were quite open and public about it that's fascinating i haven't heard that with the dalai lama that the dalai lama had said something like that i'd like to see that who is a very very great teacher um from um 
from Bhutan, I believe. Um, he is quite open about his psychedelic use. And then there, I, I know of other teachers who, like Chodam Trungpa Rinpoche, when he was in London, um, before LSD was illegal, by the way, he would um, tell people that they should try, uh, try psychedelics, try LSD. And at the same time, he was living with a bunch of hippies and he would tell certain hippies, you shouldn't do LSD, it's not good for you. And so he was really um, quite nuanced about his mm. approach to psychedelics. Yeah, that's, that was a fascinating part of your book. I appreciate that story. I've heard so many stories about Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche here in Boulder, Colorado and Naropa University and so many of his students here. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess I think it's fair to assume that most listeners of this podcast have some familiarity with Buddhism and some knowledge of psychedelics. And so I think it's great to, to dive in. And one of the things I want to ask you about, maybe we can jump into it right off the bat, but since we're already on the subject, but in terms of psychedelics and Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, it's such a rich tradition with, um, I think, you know, so many different, everything can be kind of formulaic, you know, handed down and in a very precise way. And so in my experience with traditional Tibetan lamas and teachers and Sangha, there was never any mention or allusion to psychedelics, but there would be some mention of things like sexual yoga practices that were said to be very secret. So they weren't going to be taught here, but we, it was a known thing that they existed. And um, it just seems different with psychedelics. I've just never heard personally a Lama talk about it or I've seen it historically or yeah. Well, um, psychedelics are a secret as are most aspects of the Vajrayana. In fact, there is um, there's one book, the first the first book written by a member of the Sakya lineage, which says Vajrayana has nine levels of secrecy, and so maybe the mass of public is only introduced to one or two levels of secrecy and never gets the full the full deal, as it were. Um, I, on the other hand, have heard um, quite a few. Um, lamas talk about uh, the use of psychedelics and um, my own lama um, my own teacher is one in, in particular he was a childhood friend of Trungpa and they, they both knew about the um, uh, the Tibetan Dutsirubu the, um, the uh, psychedelic pills which were in use in um, in Tibet. Often um, Tema uh, discoveries were made with um, uh, with caches of pills like a, a jar full of psychedelic pills along with the Tema scripts. Uh, these are not um, not brooded abroad, as it were, but um, they're, they're, they're generally kept um, uh, quiet. But uh, you'll find that um, uh, the some lineages, like the Gelugpa, 
hardly mention, I have never heard any of them mention uh, psychedelics. But some lineages, like the uh, Nyingma and the Kaju uh, lineages, will occasionally let let uh, hints slip about uh, about the use of um, psychedelic substances, like uh, Trumpa did, as I say, and Zhang uh, Sangchense, yeah. who is a, um, a Rime teacher. He is, uh, is not in one particular lineage, but in fact, um, uh, all lineages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess um, I've certainly heard lamas and teachers talk about psychedelics, but it's usually kind of in the context of it being something kind of new or, you know, outs- that they're interacting with outside of the Tibetan tradition or Indian Tibetan tradition. But I think like reading your book and thinking about it, it certainly seems possible, even likely that, especially with the Mahasiddhas back in India, and especially well, with the early Vajrayana, the early Tantric Buddhism, and the Amrita and the rituals and some of the stories you share in your book of like the master uh, peeing in a pot, you know, and making this potion. Right, right. That was an Avajrayana. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. there are, there are like, three stories in the book of Mahasiddhas about Nagarjuna. And this is this is um, the tantric Nagarjuna we're talking about here. It seems that there was a, a first century AD Mahayana um, philosopher, brilliant philosopher, um, who wrote like the 70 Karikas and, <laughs> and other texts about uh, the philosophical formulation of the Mahayana. This is one who lived 700 years later, maybe 600 years, I don't know. And um, uh, it's a quite different, quite different person, although the Tibetans don't distinguish between them. They say they're both the same guy. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I somehow doubt that. <laughs> um, the, the the book on the 84 Mahasiddhas um, has 83 Buddhist Mahasiddhas. Hmm. And then the last story in the book is about a Hindu called Vyali. Hmm. And Vyali um, tries for years and years to manufacture um, the uh, psychedelic and can't do it until eventually um he meets a a prostitute who puts a, a fragment of a red flower into the the potion mm. and um voila he's got the the, the um psychedelic he was looking for but i i um have like, interpreted this to um uh to mean it was a fragment of a red um, plant or something, a non-animal living thing. And uh, I um, I imagine that might have been Amanita muscaria, mm. that she added Amanita muscaria to the potion and voila, they had a psychoactive substance. Now, um, they apparently, after discovering uh, the, the secret of Amrita, they left India for an unnamed island somewhere with um, Viali 
his uh, prostitute wife, and his horse, all of whom are said to have partaken of this Amrita. And so were all immortal. Well, they were visited, it says in this last story in the book, they were visited by Nagarjuna, who at this point did not have the secret of, of Amrita. So um, Nagarjuna agrees on a swap. He gives Vyali one of his magic sandals, which are like seven league boots. And um, in exchange, he gets the secret of the uh, um, of making Amrita. Interesting. Um, then there is the story of Arya Deva, who becomes Nagarjuna's pupil. And, um, well, in one, um, one part of the story, in the early part of the story, he comes back from his arms round in the local village or town. And, um, and Nagarjuna says that he's accepted too much. He's got uh, too much food given to him by the people of the village. So next time he goes, he brings back just um, one cake encrusted with little uh, crystals of salt. Oh, sorry, sorry, sugar. Hmm. And um, uh, I interpret this to mean a cap of Amanita muscaria, which could look like a red cake covered with, uh, with crystals of sugar. And anyway, um, uh, Nagarjuna also criticized him for this. And um, uh, he... Uh, he makes another um, edible substance, which um, uh, Nagarjuna is um, astonished at and says, where did you find this? And he takes him to the, to the forest and shows him the site where he found it. And they see the earth goddess uh, arising from the ground. Hmm. It's only visible from the waist up. Well, I think that is a probably a reference to a half-grown mushroom, and Logarjuna <laughs> um, uh, challenges him to make Amrita with it. He does. They both drink their Amrita. Logarjuna pisses on a on a um, a dead bush, and it bursts into leaves and flowers, and. Um, then Arya Deva does the same, and his bush bursts into leaves and flowers too. And Nagarjuna agrees that it is uh, um, of equivalent potency. And um, uh, eventually, Arya Deva floats away into the sky and uh, um, prostrates to somebody while he's like um, 50 feet off the ground. <laughs> And, um, and that's the last we hear of him. Um, but I think it is quite a, an instructive passage when it comes to the um, the use of psychedelics in the time of the Mahasiddhas. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. 
Yeah, an interesting connection with this idea of immortality, you know, that right, is, right. is present throughout the history of world spirituality, that a great adept or spiritual master can become immortal. And there's that amazing book, I don't know if you've seen it, The Immortality Key, which traces the ancient Greek and then Roman mystery schools and how they likely used psychedelics in their ceremony. And that became like the, the Catholic Christian sacrament, um, which was then lost. I wonder if there's a similar process really with Vajrayana Buddhism where the origins of that Amrita and that initiation may have well been psychedelic, but then it was mostly lost. Because I wonder, I imagine many like monks or even Tibetans or people who have been in Tibetan Buddhism for their whole life, they might be like surprised. They're like, well, if it is secret, it's been kept secret for me for 50 years. <laughs> and like, right. And I, 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 when I was in Australia, I tried to um, interest a book store which had um, branches in various cities. Um, in in my book, and they they said, "Oh no, Buddhists don't use psychedelics." Well, mm. I document how they did in the book. If you want to contradict my book, at least read it first. <laughs> That's fair. And have, um, have you had any have you had any um, conversations or even arguments with lamas or teachers or scholars about your not book? Not one. Really? Not one Lama has said, no, we don't use psychedelics. Really? No. And in fact, my own teacher once um, said to me early in our, um, our relationship, I was in fact his first student and one of the very first Vajrayana students in the West. And he said to me, uh, some of my... Uh, students tell me that you use psychedelics. Is this true? And I said, yes. And uh, he said, oh, good. And that's <laughs> the subject. So he knew, of course, that I knew Trumpa. And I, right. I knew that um, Trumpa used uh, LSD um, with, the, uh, with his, um, his roommates. And... Um, um, was very critical of the roommate's attitude to LSD. He said, you're not reverent enough. You don't mm. listen to what it's telling you. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. It's such he a also problem. said, um, when he left for America, he said, uh, I'm going to teach the Vajrayana in America, but there's one element of it I'm never going to teach because I've seen how uh, Westerners misuse it. And um, he didn't say what it was, but I'm pretty damn sure it was psychedelics. Interesting. I mean, if that, Trinkpa is such a fascinating character. And um, the kind of party line that I heard going to the Shambhala Center and Europa University and meditation retreats was um, basically like, first of all, cannabis was bad. <laughs> Alcohol was somehow good for Trunk for Rinpoche, but probably not for anyone else. And <laughs> be careful of psychedelics because it could take you, you know, you could go crazy or take you off the wrong path. And of course, this was 15 years ago. I think society's attitudes have changed so much. And I imagine teachers now are much more open in general. But for a whole generation, their psychedelic use was kept somewhat secret. I mean, now if you talk to many older Buddhists, they had psychedelic experiences that got them interested in meditation in the beginning. But then they, then they then they stopped and like okay that was the '60s I'm going to stop now and that's the kind of cultural attitude that I've seen among that generation and I think it's shifting now. Yes, yes, and in fact, when I uh, take students, I have them 
refrain from all uh, psychoactive substances, um, particularly alcohol, for the first stage in which I teach them um, shamatha meditation, perhaps vipassana meditation, and they'll stay at this stage for at least a year hmm. when they're doing nothing but um, uh, taming their mind. Now, when the mind is sufficiently tamed, then it is possible to go on to take psychedelics. However, in the um, the second phase, which is the bodhisattva phase, the, the uh, Mahayana stage, after you've taken the bodhisattva vow, um, then I allow them to take um, an empathogen like uh, MDMA. Uh, yeah. uh, maybe once, maybe twice, but uh, not not excessively, certainly not every weekend. This right. is just something that we keep for um, a particular uh, purpose. And, um, and usually um, we will practice the four Brahma Viharas while high on MDMA because it's so much easier. That's um, amazing. Yeah. And are you, can you share more what that would look like? Are they in their own home doing it on their own or is it a group setting or do you give them guidelines of how to set it up for themselves? It can, it can be in various places. Um, if we can't find anywhere better, it's in their home. Hmm. But um, I like to do it out in nature where they're um, uh, the more likely to feel an expansive attitude towards all all sentient beings and they can visualize all sentient beings um being in that you know whatever beautiful place i've selected sometimes they select the place yeah uh, um, i'm actually um performing a uh, bodhisattva ceremony with uh, someone later this month and um this is in is going to be in a uh, uh, a state park in California, which I've been to before, and I, I agree is a thoroughly um, uh, acceptable place as it's beautiful and so and it's um, very uh, very lonely uh, apart from us, I hope, and um, um, we'll be able to to do the the ceremony to our heart's content in this i love that so you'll be conferring the bodhisattva vow and doing mahayana compassion loving kindness practice and uh-huh yeah that's beautiful and then the four that you mentioned are loving kindness compassion sympathetic joy and equanimity and meditating and, exactly you know, yes. one thing one thing that i feel is good to share you know for someone thinking about doing this on their own or in some it's like if you're going to sit down and meditate for just 30 minutes you know you have an intention to be working with your mind, maybe your body, your energy too, for that time. If you get distracted, you come back. You know, if I'm going to sit for 10 minutes and meditate on compassion, that's what I want to focus on. And I think a similar kind of principle with a psychedelic experience, if you want to spend at least some portion of that time on those four, you know, on compassion, on loving kindness, to come back to it if you get distracted because distraction comes up. And I think what you said about taming your mind, like applying that, because if you just you know, maybe you set up a nice room, a nice space, and no one's going to bother you, and you take MDMA, you may, you will probably feel a lot of love and compassion, but 
maybe that experience could be more impactful, more meaningful if you have a clear intention to really focus on that, really stay with it for a certain amount of time, really go into it, really work that muscle, so to speak, instead of just yes. laying yes. around. And it, <laughs> yeah. it becomes easier the more often you do it. Hmm. And there is, as I've outlined in the book, there is actually a um, a procedure instead of just saying, oh, I... Um, I have love for all sentient beings. Well, um, in the book, I explain that love, in Buddhist terms, is wanting someone to be happy. Hmm. So you, you're saying, I want all sentient beings to be happy, but how, how do you do this um, in manageable terms? Well, you start with yourself. You say, I want me to be happy. Hmm. And then when you're satisfied that, um, that you do have this this attitude in your mind that you want to become happy yourself, you then expand it to members of your family. You think, I want my parents to be happy. I want my brothers and sisters to be happy. And then you go beyond them. When you, you're satisfied that, that um, you really filled your mind with this this intention for your your family you go beyond your family you know more distant members of the family maybe your um your neighbors in your street maybe the people you went to school with and so you expand it and expand it till eventually you get to people you don't actually like hmm. and <laughs> you, you say that that's where the rubber meets the road Yes, that's right. Or people who don't like you, actually, by the time you've done this practice, you know, there is nobody you that, that you, you don't like yourself. Mm. But people will persist in having uh, uh, attitudes towards yourself. And then after this, you expand it to animals, to the land animals, to the sea animals, to the animals of the air, the birds and uh, butterflies and so on. And when you um, covered the whole earth with, um, with sentient beings and the, the beings below the earth and so on, you extended to perhaps invisible beings in yeah. space yeah. and other planets and say, I hope that all beings in all the universe are happy. And then when you are satisfied with that, rest for a moment hmm. and start again on compassion, which is um, wishing that no one suffers. Hmm. You can start with yourself saying, I wish that I don't suffer. And then go to your family and say, I hope my parents don't suffer. suffer and I wish my uh, brothers and sisters not to suffer and so on. And you do exactly the same with suffering and the, the, um, the, the wish, the hope that they don't suffer too. Now, the, 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 the third Brahma Vihara is uh, sympathetic joy. And I often put the... Uh, um, the four Brahma Viharas in terms of a parent and their children. It works mm. particularly well with um, those who have children. And you say, when you see your child 
playing with other children and laughing and giggling and having a good time. You don't, um, you, you don't feel jealous that you're not having the good time. You feel happy that your child is is enjoying itself. Now, this is sympathetic joy. This is joy in the happiness of others, and you um, you, you you do exactly the same. Expanding it outwards from yourself, your family, your friends, your neighbors, people you don't know, people who hate you, and so on. You hope that they all have this um, this attitude of enjoying other people's happiness. Mm. And then the fourth one is equanimity, where you're uh, actually uh, um, you you rest in the uh, uh, the, the condition of um, of, of being how you are, of being not happy, not 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 sad, and uh, um, you expand this to the rest of the universe. Um, so um, that, that that's a uh, a brief explanation of the four Brahma Viharas. Thank you. I love that. Yeah, and that's such um that's such a great thing to share, and it's such a to me, it's been like, you know, fundamental, foundational to my meditation practice, my spiritual path, I guess, from these that, you know, it's like to keep coming back to that it doesn't really matter how advanced you might think you are to keep coming back to that oh, compassionate yes. motivation. It's what, without that, you can't really practice Tantra, right? You can't really practice anything else. Absolutely. I totally agree. Without that, the Vajrayana is is um, empty and worthless. You have to have this this fundamental um feeling of connectedness with the whole universe before the before Vajrayana becomes at all meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And it just it seems like such a beautiful gift that Buddhism, of course other spiritual traditions have beautiful teachings and practices for love and compassion too, but that Buddhism can really offer to people, and especially with something like MDMA, to take that experience, to deepen it, to really touch into something very profound and deep, and then hopefully carry it through in your life and that's that's what we need in this world that care for all life um yeah well it seems to me like psychedelic experience could be someone's start to becoming interested in meditation in a more mean you know a more spiritual approach to life and then like you said so maybe that could be like an initial experience and then it might be wise for them to put that to the side and really focus on like you're saying on shamatha vipassana taming your mind gaining some mental stability. And then as you progress with that, you could then make use of the occasional experience. Do you have any just advice or suggestions for people listening, like how often they should consider something like this? How, you know, yeah. Well, when it comes to the Brahma Viharas, um, it's actually in, included in, in all of um, Tantric Sadhanas, all Vajrayana, Sardiners have a uh, brief sentence where they say, and generate the four Brahma Viharas. Yep. And next you do, well, it, it takes at least half an hour to go through all the Brahma Viharas and all the stages. But it's just a, a line or two in the, um, in the sadhana. So it's something which I think shouldn't be overlooked. It's a very, very powerful um, exercise of 
uh, maybe it doesn't do the rest of the world a lot of good, but it does you. Uh, uh, it's a very very powerful tools for um, uh, for bringing peace to your mind, and mm. um, I, I I only took the uh, the explanation of uh, um, the, my um, Dharma path how I. Uh, teach my students up to the the Maha, the uh, the Maha, uh, Mahayana, and um, I did not venture into the Vajrayana. When um, somebody does the Vajrayana, they are um, uh, I consider them um, eligible to to uh, take. A psychedelic. Mm. And I would advise them to um, to meditate before, during, and after the psychedelic to um, uh, to put it on its most universal basis. Mm. Yeah, it's not just you having fun; it's you contemplating the rest of the universe while you um, you may be in this elevated state. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously the more people who can really tap into a sense of universal compassion and act from that, it will be transforming the world. And that's, that's really the point I think of Buddhist practice, right? To transform the world to have more, less suffering and more genuine happiness. Absolutely. Totally. I think when I reflect on my meditation path that Meditating on, yeah, may all beings be happy. May they all be free from suffering, including myself in that it, it became in part a reflection on what does it mean to be genuinely happy, not just superficially happy. And that was an important, that's been an important thing for me in my life to reflect on. Right, right. And um, we, we'll find that uh, real happiness is um, is like sympathetic joy. It's like enjoying the happiness of others. Mm. And... Um, um, yeah. Well, good. Well, I guess um, part of my question I want to ask you is, do you have any advice around how often someone should have a psychedelic experience if they are a meditator, if they are wanting to engage with it this way? Well, I've... I've gone from doing psychedelics like once every couple of months to doing them once every couple of years um, because um, the more you take them, the more you... Um, familiarize yourself with that perspective and um, um, and the, the, the more you take them the less you need them hmm. so um, I love that, that's beautiful so uh, it's not that uh, any of these are addictive it's they are anti-addictive in fact if you take them too often they stop working <laughs> and, and that's absolutely true of the uh, uh, major psychedelics mm. um, like um, LSD and uh, psilocybin and so on. But um, it, it is not the case for some uh, some substances which people like treat as psychedelics, but they are only psychedelics on a superficial level that is like the like ketamine for instance and um 
ketamine is addictive and it can actually uh, i've 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 known people who've died on ketamine oh my god yeah that's in your book i saw that right and i have been criticized for not including ketamine in the substances i recommend in the book and i've always answered well um uh friends of mine have become addicted and Mm -hmm. one actually um died on ketamine not of the um effects of the drug i hasten to add um it's just that he enjoyed taking ketamine while in the bath yeah and and he must have been uh, really um out of it when he slipped below the water level yeah never regained consciousness I actually have a friend who died in a sensory deprivation tank and the police found ketamine in his pocket of his pants. So that may have contributed to him, most likely contributed to him dying there. So you should be very careful with ketamine and any kind of water. Um, interestingly, I mean, I work with ketamine to some degree in the context of therapy and it's called psychedelic assisted therapy. And it's, ketamine and cannabis are the only legal options for that right now. So I think yes. part of the interest in ketamine has been that it's um, when used properly, it's extremely safe and it's legal and it can be prescribed by a doctor for therapy, which is great. But I also agree it can be addictive. It should be treated very carefully. And it's uh, it's an interesting thing. I've had my own experiences with it in the context of therapy, and it's, um, it's extremely powerful. Um, but it's definitely yep. very different than LSD or psilocybin. So it's its own thing. Yeah. Well, you, you, I've not taken it myself. Uh, I only have the um, uh, experience of others to go on. And it said that you, uh, you lose contact with uh, the outside world. You're entirely inside yeah. your brain. And um, some describe this as, uh, um, as, thoroughly enjoyable and some people enjoy it a little bit too much <laughs> every, every at every opportunity they can yeah interestingly it's something that i have never enjoyed that much i don't feel drawn to it it's not something i particularly want to do so for me it's not addictive but it has that potential and um i was going to say it like a lot of these substances it can be used on a lighter dose where you can mean to be able to talk. And that's usually how I use it in the context of therapy, but a heavier oh, dose, yes. you will be completely gone. And, um, you do want to be in a very safe space if you are going to do that and have someone there to watch you. Um, right. I think part of the value with these kinds of things in the context of healing and therapy, healing from trauma really is, it's just a massive, it, it can be such a disruption of your normal thinking of your default mode network of your normal sense of yourself. And, Ketamine has that in common with other psychedelics. It's almost like you're going through and the world is always gray and you're always thinking about this thing. You're always seeing things in a negative light. You might not even be aware of that because that's just how you're seeing the world. And the ketamine experience could disrupt that. And wow, there's something else possible here. Well, that is um, that is its upside. That is mm-hmm. the, the benefits of taking ketamine. And of course, while we can uh, be aware of that we should also be aware of the uh, the possible pitfalls the downside of of ketamine the fact yeah. that you you can um, start doing it in small amounts every hour or or however often uh-huh. people take it 
It's terrible. Yeah, I think it's good to speak to the downsides. And it's also good to recognize there's a commercial, there's a money incentive for some people in the space to promote ketamine because that's their business. And we should be very careful of that we should be that's a dangerous thing, too. So yes, yes. It's, um, it's probably used by the medical community as a, um, as a therapeutic tool, simply because it's legal. Yep. Not because it's the best substance um, in that regard. And uh, it's just, it's the only one uh, remotely psychedelic, which is, which is still legal for use by the, the, the medical community. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Well, um, if we shift topics, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your own teacher. You mentioned him in the book. And part of that is, I think, a lot of people interested in meditation, Buddhism, all these things we're talking about, it can feel difficult to find a teacher or to have that kind of relationship. And I guess part of my question is like, the use of modern technology, like online classes, even podcasts, audiobooks, guided meditations to reach more people and what that teacher student relationship can look like for people, like what that can mean. But I, I, I recognize the value of um, online uh, meetings with a teacher. If that is the only way you're going to meet a teacher, but I would also at the same time, uh, counsel patients and be aware that uh, that there are teachers out there. You will find them, um, and um, it's really best to have a, a a relationship where you can sit down with your teacher and and absorb the teachings that he or she has to give you. The um, you. you You'll get a certain amount of this with the uh, um, with, with the communications over the internet or whatever. But I personally think that I only really connect with one of my students when I'm sitting down with them alone, because if the more people that I speak to, the more likely it is for somebody to misinterpret something I say hmm. and to get to go home with a totally um, distorted view of what I intended. When I'm with a student, I, you know, I, I tend to tune into their, um, their vocabulary, their, um, uh, their experiences, and um, I'm able to uh, give them teachings that, um, that, that work on a one-to-one basis. If it's, um, if my attention is divided by two students, I have to uh, to do a balancing act between what one person understands, what another person understands, and so on. So it's um it's all very well to get a uh, a general approach uh, to the Dharma and a general approach to what is uh, what is true, what is applicable, and so on. Um, but I think you really need that one-on-one mm. um, experience to, to to get the the full taste of the Dharma. Yeah, I appreciate that. And for you, I mean, in your case, like you were able to contact your teacher or call them or write them a letter and get 
personal feedback? Oh, I wrote letters to my teacher. We never wrote back. Oh. <laughs> he, was, he was quite famous for that, never writing back. But I, you see, I was fortunate that I met my teacher um, in 1966. And nobody that I'd ever heard of, maybe there were one or two here and there, but nobody I'd heard of um, was actually studying Tibetan Buddhism. And I spent all day, every Friday with him for the next seven years. And um, um, you see, I worked um, nights at the time. I, I was a proofreader and I worked from Sunday night to Friday morning. Friday morning, I'd go home, have a wash, put clean clothes on, and go and see my teacher who lived in in London. And uh, we would spend all day together. Sometimes, sometimes we'd even go to the cinema together. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I remember going to see the Japanese movie Kwaidan, which is a a version of a a book by Lafcadio Hearn in which he presents like um, several famous Japanese stories. He retells them in English. And um, I, I went to buy the tickets and then returned to find my teacher who was wearing his robes and he still had a shaved head and so on, standing there looking uh, serene and um, <laughs> And he, he bent over and said, they all think I'm Japanese. (laughs) 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 Which he found very amusing. That was was how we um, interacted for the first seven years. In fact, I was was seeing him every Friday, pretty much every Friday until I um, one day asked if he would be willing to give me refuge and that, uh, you know, I would become therefore a, uh, um, an accepted member of the uh, Kaju lineage. And uh, he left the room, came back with um, several sheets of paper. I think it was about six sheets of paper and said, learn this and come back next, you know, whenever you've learned it. And I, I stared at it. It was the uh, refuge ceremony in Pali. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I went home. I learned it I by just by repetition. I didn't understand the half of it. I knew those words which were similar to Sanskrit words, as I was also studying Sanskrit at the same time. And um, eventually, when I thought I could manage to uh, to reproduce it as crudely as possible, or not as possible, but as you know, as I could at the time. And um, I went back, and um, he sent somebody else to the door, saying, uh, "I'm sorry that like uh, Lama Chimmy can't see you at the moment. Huh. He's busy." And uh, and so I was rebuffed on my first appearance, and then my second time next week I went back again, and they said, "Oh, Lama Chimmy's not here; he's in Scotland." <laughs> and so I, I came back a third time, and uh, 
it, the Lama himself let me in and made me a cup of tea, he sat down and was chatting with me, and I said, well, enough of this. Like, Are we going to do the refuge ceremony? And he said, yes, good. Oh. And then he went and put his robes on, robes I've never saw him wear before, and I've never seen him wear since, <laughs> and, and and gave me the ceremony. Beautiful. And I I was his first student ever. That's amazing. Well, that's so symbolic, that three having to ask three times and... Yes. Beautiful story. Yeah. Well, I think um, there's something really special about having a relationship like that with a teacher and seeing them and they're more going to the movies, like seeing them in the more human, not just always in a teacher role. Um, I think that's part of an important part of Vajrayana, really, that all aspects of our existence can be included. Um, Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm, That's beautiful. Well, um, another question I had for you while I have you here is, Obviously, you've done a lot of study and practice with Buddhism, with Vajrayana Buddhism, things like the six yogas of Naropa and, you know, all these things. Like, do you have any reflections to share about what you feel is really relevant and helpful for people today versus aspects that might be less relevant or helpful? Um, One aspect I don't find particularly useful is... um, Reciting texts in Tibetan. Ah, yeah, good. Yeah. Very few people speak Tibetan. And even if they do, it's usually in some um, um, appalling like, mispronunciation of it. And so if only we could translate these works into English and recite them in a meaningful way. That would be so much better, so much uh, of an improvement over the, uh, the the way that they're often practiced today. Mm. But then again, it wouldn't have the exotic flavor that uh, that um, some people go for. But mm. I think it would be uh, well worth the while of Buddhism to uh, to drop these people who see it as a as a, an exotic. Um, flower they can wear in their lapel Mm. you know Mm -hmm. um, it's not for um, personal adornment it's uh, something that we ought to take to heart yeah that's a great that's a great point and the words are meaningful and they're meant to be like if you're saying things like seeing everything as emptiness like saying that in english then you can meditate on the meaning and have some experience and totally understand the tibetan and then you're blah 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 it's like yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's amazing how um the vajrayana sadhana has all these elements built into like you said the four um you know the compassion the loving kindness it's all everything's in there so if you could you could slow down and spend a long time with it and um, right. Go through it all. It's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah. I guess I'll give another shout out to your book. It has a lot of information. It's a good guide. Um, it goes through all these different substances and things, <laughs> and then um, different Buddhist teachings. Um, well, yeah. it has it has two uh, two main sections. Um, one is. Um, Buddhism for psychonauts, and the second one is is psychedelics for Buddhists. Hmm. Um, yep. So if it's um, if you're only in, you've only studied psychedelics, well, 
this is how Buddhism may help you. If you've only studied Buddhism, this is how your practice may be enhanced by using psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. And then um, one thing I made a note of to bring up here, because I think it's really was really helpful, was you know a lot of people have heard about the importance of set and setting, and you really explain in more detail what that means. But you you give seven prerequisites that I wrote down: what drug you're taking, what dosage. The set, the setting, your expectations, your lifestyle, and then your intentions. That yes. Go into that experience with. And so that I thought that was a really helpful list of seven things to check in with before you embark. Yeah, you should um, generally check all seven. Make sure that you're you're really online with with all of them, that you have them uh, all taken care of. Yeah. yeah. The other thing you said in the book that I agree with and appreciate is that there's no dosage of a true psychedelic that can be called purely recreational. There's always the possibility of right. insight, epiphany, transformation, uh, some very unexpected thing. And some of the people I work with in my therapy practice come to me and they'll or show up for a session and they'll say something like, I took what I thought was a very small amount of mushrooms last weekend. I didn't expect much to happen, and I got knocked on my ass. And um, I need to talk about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, funnily enough, um, this um, organization I've recently um, become involved with, as they are, you know, patrons and sponsors of me, they have. Um, had several uh, different uh, types of mushrooms, all all of the same species, all psilocybe cubensis. And they've had them all analyzed for their potency. And they found there is actually a 40, four zero fold difference between wow. the weakest ones and the strongest ones. <laughs> yeah. so you can't take like... Um, you know, a teaspoon of mushrooms, assuming it's going to be the same as every other teaspoon of mushrooms. Everyone is is basically different. And uh, That's oh, a good another point. another thing, which um, I find uh, interesting, um, is that the well, they they provide mushrooms for their their congregants. The weakest. Um, kind of mushroom is the most popular. Wow. The, the strongest ones are used by some people, but definitely not the most people. Yeah, I think that's significant. I think that when it comes to that moment, there's fear that comes up and, um, and there's a good reason for that. It takes a lot of respect, you know. And... Mm. Well, uh, with a truly potent dose of any psychedelic, not just mushrooms, but any psychedelic, um, you're confronted with the uh, the realization that um, the you that you thought existed before you took the drug is not real. Hmm. There is no real you, yeah. and this is known as ego death in the the the, 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 the literature surrounding this, and. Um, it's something that you have to embrace, and if you if you try and deny it, um, it will come back and bite you on the bum. You know, 
it's something that you can't deny. You have to accept it as a reality. We are just, you know, part of the furniture, if you like. We, we are <laughs> part of the, uh, the 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 landscape of uh, of of our existence, and we're we're um, we we can be um, effective, a comfortable part of the furniture, or a <laughs> Uh, a useful part of the furniture, like a standard lamp or something, but uh, um, when when not, you know, the um, we're not the uh, central part of anybody's existence apart from our own. Wow! And yeah, I think it's good to that's that's well said, and I think it's I think it's honest just to acknowledge there's fear around death through. I would, you know, 99.99% of people, right? And even if you think, oh, I want to experience ego death, when the when that moment comes, there's probably going to be fear and there's probably going to be that ego that yes. actually doesn't want to die. <laughs> it's probably, yes. It's going yes, to know absolutely. that, you know? Yeah. Although sometimes there, there, there isn't any fear. It just sneaks up on you. Mm -hmm. I have I've sat with many people who have done psychedelics and I, I've just been there as a as a guide, as an observer, as, a, as someone they can rely on. And on several occasions, one of these um, uh, people have said about, it'll be about an hour and a half, two, in, two hours into the trip, they'll say, have I died? Mm, yeah. And I just have to say, well, no, but perhaps that the um, less useful parts of you may have died. So just say goodbye to them and accept your uh, your new being. Mm. And um, um, but it, it's strange how many people have actually have actually mentioned that and and have just um, noticed it as a uh, as an interesting part of their their new existence. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, I can kind of sneak up and yeah. I wanted um, another part of the book I wanted to bring up. You share the story in your first book, Secret Drugs of Buddhism, too, and, and then in this new one. But you had this early experience with psychedelics where you um, experienced this this kind of Indra's net, this interconnected jewels of the universe. And you could share yeah. more about that. But part of what I appreciated was you're really using kind of Buddhist logic to look at it. And you said, one, either this experience I had of Indra's net is something universal and it's been accessed by meditators in the past and now it can also be accessed by psychedelics in your case, or two, it's only accessible through psychedelics. And um, that means that the great masters of the past tried psychedelics and had that experience and gave those teachings from that experience. And for me, I would definitely go with number one, that deep meditators could access these experiences and that psychedelics could also reveal them and that we're I just take the perspective that Buddhism really is about getting in touch with, with what's true on a deeper and deeper level and that it could be experienced in different ways yep. and it's there to be seen. It's not being created by a medicine. It's not being created by a meditation. If you're doing it properly, it's, you can actually have insight into something beyond that. Do you have any? Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, um, well, I, I, I can say that I've, I've tried on several occasions to reproduce that experience, mm. but for whatever reason, um, I was incapable. It did not reappear to me. So I consider that 
um, early experience that was only um, a couple of months after I first took refuge with Lama Chimmy. I've considered that to be a, if you like to put it in Christian terms, a moment of grace. Mm. Of just, um, I was, you know, blessed by the the particular um, influences of the time, of the fact that it was um, at my friend's house in the English countryside that I had no. Uh, responsibilities at all, and I ju- I was just able to relax and um, um, become absorbed in the music of Bach, which he was playing on his uh, his record player. And uh, so, um, I just think it was it was something um, special to that that instant, that moment in time. Where for that half hour I had to gaze on this infinite array of crystal spheres, and um, uh, no amount of trying will actually get you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moment of grace. I appreciate that. And then, I mean, now it's just a memory. But do you find that with something like that, or other experiences like that? that you can kind of keep that memory alive such that you can still kind of feel the experience a little bit and kind of. You can a little bit, but um, um, I'll give you an, um, uh, the perspective from the Kaju um, masters that they say that if you have a great meditation experience, you can talk it over preferably with your teacher, once, mm. and then never mention it again. And you you bring these uh, wonderful meditation experiences to your teacher, and he says, that's just nyam. That nyam is Tibetan for experiences, or it's just something which occurred once in one meditation, and it's not significant. Mm. Um Occasionally, occasionally, you will say yes. That's that's right on. You're you're, um, you're perfectly right. But still, don't bring it up again. You had it once, and to repeat it, to keep repeating the story as my um, account of the, um, the the crystal net uh, is re- repeating something that happened once, and the more I repeat it the more it just gets to be words. Mm-hmm. And if you don't repeat it, it can exist as it was in its in its um, ineffable state that you can't actually uh, phrase it in words. It's a um, an experience which um, you've had and which you may be able to share with your teacher. But you'll never be able to uh, replicate by the means of, of words. It's a difference between the the uh, absolute state and the relative state. You can um, experience something as an absolute, and as soon as you try to put it into words, it devolves into the relative state. So hmm. um, yeah, that's all I can say about that. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, um, 
I participated one time in a ayahuasca ceremony with some shamans from Colombia. And then at the end of it, the next morning, they said, whatever you experience, you know, keep it to yourself. Don't go around and tell it to a bunch of people. And it was a similar really? kind of message. Very mm -hmm. good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of hallmark, I guess, of Buddhism, like the non-attachment. And it's kind of famous for that. And I think if you really yeah. study that, think about it, reflect on it, it's something that could help everyone. So it's, you know, even if you're not interested in calling yourself a Buddhist or getting too deep into that, that's that non-attachment you're speaking of uh, can, it's helpful. It's good actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the only way to proceed, I imagine I'm. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say one of the things about the story that you just shared that stuck out to me was you had no responsibilities. It was like a carefree kind of attitude. Like I'm in this nice home and I can just relax and, no expectations. Right. You weren't trying to have this big experience. You were just totally, sounds like, just really relaxed. And that's Absolutely. something that Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Good. Well, I, I want to um, ask you about this thing of psychedelics being secret. It seems that it's not just the Western world or Judeo-Christian values or the war on drugs, but maybe in Asia too, maybe across the world. But it's kind of like why and in today's world they're becoming less and less secret more and more people are being more and more open i think that's a good thing and i just wonder was it also a part of indian and then tibetan maybe chinese and maybe japanese culture to anything that could really affect your consciousness was kept kind of secret and kept away from people and like it was kind of kept for the elites perhaps or the initiates or the well i think originally the secrecy started with the um the brahmins in the period of the Rig Veda. And um, you see, the, the Brahmins had created at about uh, 2500 BC, they'd created this new language called Sanskrit, right. which is an artificial language made of the five um, languages of the, um, the various Aryan tribes who, in, who migrated into India at that time. Now, the word Sanskrit means the perfected one. And so um, they removed all irregularities from the language. There are no Sanskrit irregular verbs. And um, one thing they did was remove all references to mushrooms from the language. That's and I think I learned that in your first book. That's such an amazing. That's such an amazing thing. How did you learn that? How did you realize that? Oh, um, by actually trying to. I've got a, a, a several um, Sanskrit English dictionaries, and I I tried to look up the word <laughs> from, and it just wasn't there. That's so, so amazing. Yeah. And then eventually, I found. Well, I I've read the the laws of Manu, which are the. Um, the, the earliest formulation of um, of a legal system in India, which was um, written up sometime between a thousand and five hundred BC, and um, in it, um, it doesn't like mention mushrooms by name because they had no name, but it, it mentions them as. Um, uh, as these uh, various words, which meant um, umbrella, <laughs> which they're umbrella shaped, or parasol, 
which was another one. And then the, the most fanciful of all was uh, the word Uchilindra, which means uprising maggoty thing. So it was an you know, it was a sprouting maggoty thing, but they d- didn't dare name it exactly, and they um, they they said anyone who is um, anyone who uh, touches a mushroom is guilty of the same crime as um, wounding a brahmin, That's and incredible. anyone who Amazing. uproots a mushroom is guilty of uh, the same crime as killing a Brahmin. And so they had to have believed mushrooms to be uh, uh, particularly valuable and only accessible to Brahmins, and no one else could touch them. Wow. Uh, So it was that kind of atmosphere which, which... uh, Buddhism inherited, and eventually the um, Vajrayana also inherited this. Um, let's not be uh, um, too overt about the use of mushrooms kind of attitude. And um, uh, as you say, in the modern society, they're available to anyone who can read. You can buy. <laughs> um, you can buy. Um, Shogun's books, Carl and T. Carl, and find out about the the hundreds of psychedelics he he created. By the way, um, he created about 400 psychedelic substances and and left a book of uh, about 230 different preparations, which he he hadn't had time to do himself. I've just... uh, written down in a book and then now um the the, the property of um uh, a few of his colleagues who are steadily making these substances and uh, uh intend to get them uh, registered with the uh, dea and um oh, uh, yeah that's so, so incredible they're doing it on the quiet in berkeley <laughs> um, well this uh, uh yeah, it's amazing. Well, the, this this picture emerges for me of psychedelics being part of the evolution development of humanity from our earliest days. You know, Terence McKenna had that, you know, stone day hypothesis. And then the powers that be kind of realizing how powerful they are and kind of controlling them, keeping them secret to such a point where they even get lost. The knowledge of it at all is like lost to most people. And now we're in a new age, the information age, an age of democracy, you know, across the world is seen as the better form of government in general. And it's a kind of democratization of this knowledge. And just as anyone could pick up a book and read about psychedelic mushrooms and all these things, anyone could pick up a book or go on the internet and read about the tantras, which historically were very right. And we're in right. this new age. We're in a new world. We're in a new time where this information is well, open to everyone. Except that the, the tantras are um, hidden in such a cloak of secrecy that, um, I mean, you read one of the tantras, for instance, um, uh, starts like the 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 Hinayana sutras always start. Thus have I heard hmm. the Buddha was living in such and such a place in the presence of such and such a uh, 
uh, selection of uh, his disciples. Then the Mahayana comes along and says, well, the, the Buddha was living, the such of I heard, the Buddha was living in a um, such and such a, um, a celestial place. And in his retinue were um, Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas, uh, Mahabodhisattvas and gods, and, and and they go off into hundreds of followers, including extraterrestrial beings. And then the um, um, the tantras start with an absolutely scandalous um, take on this, when they they are likely to start. For instance, thus have I heard the Buddha was at one point. Um, living in the vagina of uh, such and such a goddess. Wow. Yeah. He was accompanied by these, these beings. And um, one of them, the uh, Buddha Kapala um, Tantra, says, um, and uh, Vajrapani asked him, well, how do we enlighten the, the really stupid people? <laughs> and at this point, the Buddha's head fell off and it rolled around and a scroll came out of his mouth. And, you know, this is, um, this sort of stuff is highly uh, symbolic hmm. and, and highly cryptic. And if you have the empowerment, you're given the, um, the plain, well, we would say plain English, um, uh, explanation of what these words really mean. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So, often, yes. Often that plain English explanation doesn't include anything about psychedelics, right? Well, if you have a hard connection to your teacher and you spend like day after day with your teacher, just you and him, then you know, he will explain what the psychedelics mean and um, what psychedelics are appropriate for you to take. And um, it, it especially in the the Nyingma and Kaju lineages where they have uh, um, um, secret caches of these uh, substances are revealed. And, mm. uh, um, and sometimes the... Um, the, the composition of these um uh these substances are um uh are passed down hmm. i actually uh, um have a uh a tibetan text which i found um in a prayer wheel um which is um uh which is ostensibly by the uh, Bhutanese um, Teton Pemalingpa, hmm. and it's um, the one the one text of his which um, um, Jamgon Control Rinpoche was uh, unable to find when he compiled the, the list of um, of um, all the termas known at that point in the early nineteenth century. And it gives lists of, um, uh, of botanical substances, which, um, if only we understood what these were actually, um, what they actually were, 
um, could probably be used to make a psychedelic now. Unfortunately, they're in the um, uh, flowery Tibetan language, mm. which doesn't exactly say, well, um, this is a daisy, this is a dandelion. You know, they, they are um, very... Um, poetic expressions of what the uh what the plants were yeah yeah one of the parts in your new book that i found really fascinating was um the description of some of like the sacred pilgrimage site or pure land and that some of the goddesses there could actually be plants or you know yes that just totally made sense to me yeah absolutely all plants the um the the dakinis which were found were uh were plants and the and was also thought that the Dakinis guarded these plants and the Dakinis um, gave you the visions after you eaten the plants. So uh, the, 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 the meaning of uh, Kandroma or Dakini is, um, uh, is multifarious and it depends exactly what you're talking about, what the, uh, the word Dakini means. Hmm. Yeah, that's such a fascinating concept, the female wisdom, deity, sky dancer, but yeah, it could be the plants, it could be. And they're, they're, they're often, um, I mean, for me anyway, um, uh, Dakinis are often um, uh, characters in my dreams that give hmm. me um, important teachings. Um uh, but I believe this is um, this is only uh, available to you after you've 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 done the meditations on on the dakinis, done their their mantras um, for some years, and then they will eventually appear in your in your dreams. Yeah, I guess I'll just you know um, it's just interesting for me to note that. Whatever role psychedelics played in the history of Vajrayana Buddhism, it's just interesting how that seems like it's been the most secret part of the tradition. Perhaps it's just it must be cultural reasons for that, right? I mean, there's no. Yes, I just yeah, just notice. <laughs> I think we're in a new time where um, there's value in less secrecy and more transparency, and I'm actually a fan of that. So, right, yeah. Well, fascinating. It's been amazing talking to you. This is a great conversation. I think it has a lot of helpful tips for people. You know, it's not just theoretical. Um, any Anything else you want to share with us? Not really. I, I'm, I can't think of any uh, gnomic utterances that will uh, <laughs> hit the nail on the head right now. I guess it's just, I'm just thinking that we're in a difficult, I mean, I guess everyone, you know, maybe every time period says this, but here we are 2024, there's a lot of war in the world, there's a lot of problems in our world, there's all these environmental catastrophes looming over us, and I really do believe that meditation and the teachings of Buddhism can be a help, and I think psychedelics can be a part of the solution, the shifting our, because from the Buddhist point of view, all these problems, all these outward problems are actually creations of our own minds, right? It's because of our ignorance that we're creating. Right, right, right. So, in particular, they're they're a product of the ignorance of our leaders' minds. People who, who um, you might not, I might not, 
Sears leaders, but people who assume control of a country and then um, um, empower uh, a few thousand people to be a member of their army or air force, navy, and what have you, and attack another country. Well, if you have uh, the, the the Buddhist teachings, and you know have those um, at your heart, you've really taken them to mind. You're not going to participate in any of that, and I just hope yeah. that more and more people will wake up and find their um, their their kinship with all beings, with all members of the human society, and uh, um, all animals and, and uh, um, other beings too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it's not. Part of the inspiring part of this conversation for me is it's I think it's not enough just to feel a sense of kinship with all other humans. We need to include the animals, the plants, the, the environment. It's just totally, totally, yes. Absolutely. Well great. Well thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was a really rich conversation. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>